Before we look into God's Word, I just want to add a couple prayer requests. Willie Henderson has had continued knee problems after his surgery, and it's still swollen quite a bit, but he's doing a little bit better, but continue to pray for Willie. And then Sandy Roberts' son was in a very serious car accident, and he has uh, swelling in the brain and uh, not sure how that's going to turn out in the end. So pray for him. He's not a believer, and I know Sandy would really appreciate your prayers for them. Please take your Bibles and turn back to First Chronicles chapter 10, the passage we read just a little earlier. We're going to be focusing on the last two verses of chapter 10 of First Chronicles, verses 13 and 14, but we'll really survey the whole chapter. My messages don't usually come from this type of inspiration, but this week it did. I was talking with someone quite extensively, and they were rehearsing with me how that they have in recent times decided that they want to follow God wholeheartedly. And so that's the direction they're taking. But during our conversation, their lament was that it had hardly ever been the case for most of their lives. And they said to me, almost in tears, that they wish they could go back and change it. And the reason was it's because they've wasted decades of their life. That conversation, the Lord moved in my heart to bring a message this morning entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. I wish I could say that that was the only conversation about that subject that I've ever had with anyone, but unfortunately, it's not. And so I want to pose a question to you this morning and ask you a question. Are you wasting your life? As I thought long and hard about it this week in preparation for this sermon, I came to the conclusion that before anyone, including you and I this morning, can answer the, that question, we, has to, we have to ask a few other questions. For example... What is considered a wasted life? So online, I found a definition. A wasted life is where a person has so much potential and so much to offer, but they stay stuck and don't grow into the person they could become. Another definition I found stated, it's not taking opportunities for personal growth and fulfillment. And so I actually took quite a bit of time to read these two and many, many others. In fact, I read another article that said 10 signs you are wasting your life, so you could actually figure it out, apart from perhaps a definition. The list included this. You don't feel inspired. You spend too much time on your smartphone. Ouch. You sleep a lot. You spend unnecessary money. You worry to an inordinate amount about what people think of you, you complain a lot, and you frequently engage in negative self-talk. Over and over, article after article had the same thing about written in every one of them. They just said it differently, and that was this, that the way you measure or consider a wasted life is by measuring it to the degree in which you're you're self-centered. See, As long as you build your life around yourself and get everything you want and have everything you think that you think would make you great and happy, see, that will be a non-wasted life. So according to the articles and the people that wrote them, 
If you don't want to have a wasted life, then you have to have a successful career or you have to attain maximum happiness or you have to find and truly design your purpose in your life and then fulfill it. When I was young, a couple years ago, there was an existential phrase that was common back in the 70s, and it was this, existence precedes essence. And what it's trying to say is that first you exist, and then by existing, you create your own essence. You create your own purpose, the reason why you're living and what makes it important. See, you design who you will be. Sound familiar? Well, it is. Because for most people back then and in our postmodern world today, it is the same. And that is this. You want to not waste your life? Find the definition of that within you. Not outside of you. Not some other source. But inside of you. Samuel Beckett, and maybe you've heard of this play. He wrote a play called Waiting for Godot. And Godot is just his way of saying God. And it starts off the whole play with two guys sitting under a tree, Vladimir and Estrogen. And they're having a conversation about what life really is all about. And while they're having this conversation, they're waiting for Godot to come. But he never comes. He never comes. And, and toward the end of the play, a little boy appears announcing this. Godot is not going to be there. He's not coming at all. And so they hear that news and they decide to leave. But they never get up and go anywhere. They just stay there. They go nowhere. The curtain falls. The play is over. And Godot never showed up. And they never went anywhere. It was Beckett's way of saying this. It was his existential dramatic way, theatrically, of saying this. See, there's a lot of people waiting for God to come in their life and really give them purpose. But he never comes. And, and, and Beckett wants to say, see, if you're waiting for God to find some essence in your life, some purpose in your life, and he doesn't show up, here's what you will do. You'll go nowhere. You'll be no one. And he's implying that when you pursue transcendence, that you won't be able to find the purpose or essence of your life. He's not the only one to talk that way. The Beatles released an album called Rubber Soul in 1965. And they sang about their existential views for an entire generation when they sang a song they wrote called Nowhere Man. The lyrics are like this. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like me and you? Nowhere, going nowhere, having no point of view. Why? Because they don't have a purpose except self. The self-centered life is the wasted life. A nowhere purpose, a nowhere plan, ending up with people who go nowhere. See, the nowhere life is a wasted life. Is that your life? If so, you don't have to wait any longer because the true living God, can I say Godot, is here. And he came this morning and have you, has you here this morning because 
He wants to have you exchange your nowhere life for his somewhere life, and more specifically, his someone life, Jesus. He wants to offer you this morning in exchange for your self-centered life, a God-centered life, so you can live out the greatest purpose for which every person who's ever lived was created. So I want you to know in a sense this morning that a wasted life is a self-centered life because a God-centered life is the essence of life. King Saul, who's the person in our chapter that the whole story revolves around, he wasted his life. He is the quintessential nowhere man. And the reason is because Saul lived an incredibly self-centered life. And so I want you to think of this text this morning and the remainder of my message as a warning. A warning about not wasting your life. And what it would look like if you did. And we're going to look at just two things, that's all. Saul's self-centered life and Saul's self-centered death. Verse 13 starts off simply because these last two verses throw light back on the entire chapter and what it's all about. And verse 13 says, so Saul died. You see, a form of the word death or die is used seven times in this chapter. Chapter, And the chronicler who wrote this and recorded it for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to focus on the meaning of Saul's death because in it we find the meaning of his life. His death really and how it happened is a microcosm of how he lived his entire life because it's a pattern. And the pattern starts off in chapter 10 and verse 3. The Philistines were targeting him. And that's why in verse 3 it says, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And that's ironic. If you know anything about Saul, he was a Benjamite. And Benjamites had two great talents. They were awesome with a bow and arrow, and they were awesome with a slingshot. And and most of them were left-handed. Those are unusual traits, but the Bible very clearly depicts if you're a Benjamite, you were left-handed most likely and could do those two things well. And that's how he dies. The very weapon that was his specialty is used by others to bring him down. But I want you to know this. As one commentator says, You can almost see the invisible hand of God directing the arrows right at Saul. Why would you say that? Because did you read our last line of the two verses? The passive view of Saul's death in verse 13 says, and he died. But in verse 14, it gives the active view of his death. The Lord put him to death. So you got to understand the importance of the entire chapter right off the bat. You have to see beyond the details of the story because here's what's true. It wasn't that the Philistines put Saul to death. It wasn't the arrows that killed him. It wasn't even the sword, his own sword that he fell on that killed him. You see, the Lord killed him. Why would the Lord be so severe Why such an incredible punishment? Because Saul pretended for his adult life to be God-centered when he was self-centered. And the chronicler wants you and I to know how God views that. He views it so strongly that he ended up taking Saul's life for it. See, 
the chapter in 1 Samuel 13 says that God was looking for a man after God's own heart. That was David. Saul was a man after Saul's own heart. That is the root issue of a wasted life. The root issue of a wasted life is someone whose life centers around themselves alone. Can I tell you this this morning? There can only be one center of your life. It's either you or God. It's not mixture. It's not partial. It's one or the other. So the Bible says, why did he die? And I'm going to call them God gaps. And I'll tell you why. Saul had three God gaps that were constantly being expressed in his life that demonstrated his self-centeredness. The first one in verse 13 puts it this way. So he died, here's the reason, for his breach of faith. And the same word is used in the very next phrase, he broke faith. Both of them are the word breach. And the word breach, as you might, I, you know, might think, it talks about a gap in the wall. There's a gap in the wall. There's a breach. The wall should be together. It should be one, but there's not. There's this big gap in it. Saul had a gap. I call it a God gap in his life. There was a self-centeredness that caused the gap, and it divided his life from God. There was a public Saul and there was a private Saul. There was a religious Saul, and there was the real Saul. And there was a breach of faith. He had a gap between really loving and serving God and pretending to do so. And that gap showed up every time as you read the entirety of his life, which is over 20 chapters in 1 Samuel. Every time Saul faced a crisis, his decisions ended up being self-centered rather than God-centered. And these self-centered, self-centered decisions were not gray areas or secondary value things. It wasn't little peripheral things in his life. No, they were primary importance. They were major areas of his life. They were direct disobedience to the revealed commands of God that he knew clearly. Let me give you examples. 1 Samuel 13, Saul is in a huge fight with a huge Philistine army. He is outnumbered 6,000 to 600. He is outgunned. They have 3,000 chariots and soldiers on horses. And the Bible describes them as the number of the sand of the sea. There was no way he could win this battle, humanly speaking. So what Samuel said to him, knowing God's battle strategy, is that the numbers never matter. And what the weapons of the other opposing force have never matters. He, Samuel says, wait for me. And when I get there, we're going to pray to the Lord and we're going to offer a sacrifice. Now, what Saul was telling him was not some religious ritual that you kind of just shake to get off the evil spirits and win the battle. No, by offering a sacrifice before the battle, you were purposely putting God at the center of the fight. You were saying by that offering that you could never win, and God, you're going to have to step in and do it all. But Saul had a God gap. He didn't wait. He got anxious. He looked around. He looked at circumstances, and he made a self-decision instead of a God decision. And so instead of waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, he offered it himself. See, 
And Samuel comes and says to him, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, which he commanded you. For the Lord has sought for a man after his heart, but you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, his God gap has started. But unlike, I mean, I should say, like all of us who struggle with God gaps, it just gets bigger. 1 Samuel 15, God commanded Saul to go and wipe out all the Amalekites, all of them, not sparing any. And that's severe again, but why? Because when Israel was leaving Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them from behind. Now, they have a a line of two to three million people, so it stretches for miles. And the Amalekites attacked their line from the back, and that's where the elderly, the infirmed, and small children were because they were at the back because they took them longer. They were slower. So all the people, the infirmed, the elderly, the children, they were all in the back, and the Amalekites did what nobody in etiquette of war would have done. You don't attack the back because all the soldiers are in the front. And so God said for their cruelty, he was going to wipe them out, and Saul was given that responsibility And so a few days later, after the battle, Samuel shows up. No one was to live, but Saul spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And he spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. No animals were to live. They were all to be korban, dedicated to God. But they spared them for themselves. And so Samuel asked him, what is the sound and the bleeding of the sheep in my ear? And so he tries to explain to him why he did it. And God says to Samuel that he has regretted making Saul king because Saul has turned back from following me. There's been a breach. There's a gap in his life. And instead of repenting, here's what Saul Saul says. Go out and when I pray and do the sacrifice in front of the people, you come out in front with all the people with me. So it looks good. Because he wasn't concerned about God. He was concerned about himself. You know what another irony is? He failed to wipe out all the Amalekites. And you know the final blow that killed Saul? Uh, Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1. He fell on his own sword, but it didn't kill him. He's in agony, but he's not dead like he thought he would be. And he's waiting. The Philistines are going to come and torture him. And so an Amalekite wanders onto the battlefield, finds him, and an Amalekite kills him. Why? Because he didn't obey the voice of God. There shouldn't have been any Amalekites, but there was. God was punishing Saul for his selfishness. Do you see how it works in his life? Let me ask you. How about your life? See, you start making decisions in important areas of your life that you know, let me say it again, you know are in direct disobedience to God's word. You have a God gap. You know that you shouldn't be dating a lost person, but you do it anyway. I've seen it over and over. God's gaps, the God gaps get wider. You date them, you get serious with them, you get engaged to them. And eventually many get married to them. It's not because they don't know God has forbidden it. They do it anyways. And then what they didn't see is the burden of the breach gets heavier and heavier. No, 
No agreements on where or if you're going to go to church. No agreements between husband and wife about how you're raising your children. No agreements on giving money or doing anything with ministry or to the Lord. But you've gone your own way. It was a self-centered choice. But you know what's crazy with Saul and with us? Is after he had that big to-do with Samuel, and he had Samuel come on out front, make it look good from everybody else. You know what he did? Samuel found that he had built a monument to himself. Can you believe it? After 13 and 15, he builds a monument in the middle of the plain for himself so everybody can see how great he was. See, when you don't find it in satisfaction in obeying God and doing what he wants, you will find it somewhere else. So you exalt yourself. You build monuments. And so we can't find it in the marriage that we shouldn't be having. So we build a monument to find it educational monument. So we put degrees behind our name and education. All those things are great. But see, it becomes another part of our pattern. Uh, A career monument of achievements to pad our resume and to prove that we do have worth, even though we may have blown it in some other area. A financial monument for status. And I'm planning for my future because it isn't about God. It's about ourselves. And as we build monuments, as Saul did, the same thing happens. There's less and less God in our lives. And we start going down a road away from God more and more and more. See, it's for the people who, they don't come to all the services. It's only Sunday. And then, you know what? We build monuments to ourselves, and pretty soon we don't have time for that either. Less Bible in our lives, less prayer, less church, less ministry, less witnessing, and the breach is broadened more and more. When I was in England, you'd go to the underground and use the subway. They called it the tube. And they had, when certain stations, pretty much older stations, that often there was a little phrase all over the wall on the floors as you got into the trains. It said, mind the gap. Because when these trains pulled in the station between the edge of the platform and you getting on the train was about two feet of distance, and you had to kind of take a decent large step to get onto the train. And so there were all kinds of things on the floor, warning signs, mind the gap. You got to look at what you're doing. They had it over the intercom or whatever it was. They had to say, mind the gap. It was a joke. I mean, they had so many times in play. We, we used to joke and say it all the time. But it wasn't a joke if you didn't mind the gap. You could get your foot caught between the platform and the train, and you could fall down, and there were people who did, and you could really seriously hurt yourself. It was dangerous if you didn't mind the gap. But no matter how many places they had it up, no matter how many times it was said, people ignored it. They ignored it to their own peril. Are you minding the gap in your life? Oh, how many times have you said in church? How many times have you heard, hey, This is what your life should be all about. This is what who who you're supposed to be. This is the choices, the kind of things you're supposed to, this is how you're supposed to live. But we don't mind the gap. We don't. And instead, we do what Saul did. You know what he did? Samuel confronts him. And you know what he says back to him? He tries to minimize his disobedience and maximize his disobedience. Oh, I, I did kill everybody except Agag. I did destroy and dedicate all the stuff and all the spoils to you, God. Just a few oxen and a few sheep. Oh, and then he says, but I spared the sheep. And then he says this, so Samuel, you could sacrifice it to your God. That's how he's starting to talk. 
See, every time he minimalizes his disobedience and maximizes his obedience. You ever do that? Your kids do, and you know it, right? I did most of my homework. I only played video games for half the time, even though you told them not to play at all. Our kids do that. I cleaned most of my room. Okay, I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that like you told me to. And we're supposed to be okay with that, right? Then we just become adults and become more sophisticated with the same argument. Well, most of the movies I watch, they don't all have filth on it. Just a few. But this one TV series I really like, I mean, everybody's watching it. I mean, I kind of maybe fast forward through some of it. Well, most of the time I don't use vulgar language, but you know that, she makes me so mad. Most of the things I write online and social media, they're really good things, encouraging things, but some people really, really make me angry. Your God gap is showing. In fact, it's growing. God gap number three. The Bible says he broke faith with the Lord, he didn't keep his commandments, and he consulted a medium. We can say it today, a witch. Seeking guidance. Years earlier, Saul had made a law that if anybody would consult a medium and look for Satan or evil to give guidance, that they should be put to death. Crazy, isn't it? Years later, the law that he made, a capital punishment law, he's now breaking himself. Breaching the breach is even bigger than it's ever been before. Saul never thought, I can't imagine, that he ever saw this day coming. I don't ever thought that he thought, ah, I'll be in the situation someday where I'm breaking the law. I deserve capital punishment. I'm seeking a witch in secret. I don't think he ever could have predicted that that's how his wasted life would end. How does this happen, Pastor Walker? How did it happen to Saul? How can it happen to me? Well, there are parallel statements, if you'll notice, in verses 13 and 14. Can you see them? And he says this in verse 13. In that first one, he did not keep the command of the Lord. Second one, do you see it? They're parallel. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. You see, he didn't keep God's word because he didn't value God's wisdom. Do you see that? He didn't keep God's word because he didn't value God's wisdom. The God gap allowed no God guidance. Let me say it again. God gaps don't allow God guidance. That's why the main verb is repeated in contrast. He did seek wisdom from a witch. He did not, verse 14, seek wisdom or guidance from the Lord. See, before the battle ever started, and this is not his first rodeo. This is not the first battle he ever had. He knows what he's supposed to do. The law of kings is, if you read 1 Chronicles 28.9, that if you seek the Lord, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. That is the rule every king knew. And he disobeys it. Instead of getting on his knees and praying and say, God, should I go to battle? What should I do? He doesn't seek God. He seeks a witch instead. 
in the, in the battle itself, when he is wounded and he is hurt and he thinks he's going to lose his life, does he call out for God's help? No. You know what he does? He asks for his armor bearer to kill him. And eventually he has to ask the former enemy that he didn't slay, the Amalekite, to kill him. See, he could have sought God, but he sought other people. See what happens in a wasted life. Here's what marks it. The underlying problem with Saul and with us and our wasted lives is that we are self-centered instead of God-centered in this way. The choice of the source of our wisdom. What do you seek guidance for? Because what's true of someone who's wasting their life is they don't seek God's guidance. They seek worldly guidance. You know, it's interesting in this entire chapter Yahweh's name, the Lord, is only used three times, and it's all of them are in these two verses, and they are all only negative examples about how Saul never had God in his life. There is no mention of God in any of the battles and any of his decisions, no God whatsoever, and the only time it's mentioned is how he left God out. Is that you and me? I've been to a lot of funerals. I've been to a lot of funerals. God's name is never mentioned. They talk about the person and what they were known for and what they liked and what they were like and how they did, and they never talk about one thing about God in their life. And I sit back waiting to talk about that person and say, what a tragedy, a wasted life. A wasted life is one that seeks the world's wisdom over God's wisdom. See, God was saying one thing to Saul, In response, Saul decided to choose another source of wisdom, his own wisdom. And every time our wisdom and the world's wisdom replaces God's wisdom, we esteem the wisdom of the world greater than God's wisdom. It is idolatry. That's what it is. And the worst part of it is, is the idol is ourselves. A self-centered life is a wasted life because it leaves God out. We choose our wisdom over God's wisdom in our finances. We choose God's wisdom over our wisdom, I should our wisdom over God's wisdom and how we're going to raise our children. And we call the things of the scriptures antiquated when it comes to raising our children. We choose our wisdom, or yes, over God's wisdom, and we do it in our morals, we do it in our priorities. We listen to celebrities on TV who are anything but godly, and we choose their wisdom on what to dress, how to wear, what the clothes we wear, what is appropriate, and what is modest. We choose to listen to the wisdom of the Beatles and the existentialism and the music of our day, which is by and large anti-God. We have friends who are constantly bombarding us with what we think we ought to do with our life and who we should have as friends and who we should date. And we use, we listen to sports figures about racial issues and other issues of life. And we believe that we can find wisdom in the White House or anywhere else. We choose the wisdom of secular psychology over God's wisdom to tell us how to deal with our emotions and how, what the true causes of our problems are all about. We do it all the time. You know why? God gaps. 
God's gap. It's no wonder that verse 14 says this, therefore, can I tell you this? There's always a therefore when we choose not to follow God. When we choose to live a wasted life, there's always a therefore. There's always constant consequences, and they're severe at times. Therefore, the Lord put him to death. See, Saul lived a self-centered life, and he lived a self-centered death because you cannot categorize your life. You can't stop doing what you've been doing for decades He died the way that he lived, all about himself. That's why he committed suicide. And he he couldn't even do that right. He died, and by the way, perhaps the worst part about a wasted life is he didn't just waste his. He helped waste the lives of others he supposedly loved around him. Did you hear what the scripture says? In one day... All three of his sons died. The heirs to the kingdom, his line, his family, his generations, in one day, all wiped out. Why? Saul was self-centered. David, when he was God-centered, defeated Goliath, an armor opponent that he could never have beaten. And he took the armor of Goliath and put it in the tabernacle. And why he did that was to give the victory and all the the glory to God. The opposite happens. Instead of, like David killed the Philistines, the Philistines kill Saul. They take his armor and they put it in the temple of Dagon. You know why? Because they said this, oh yeah, our God's greater than his. That's how far the God gap went. David, after he beat Goliath, took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. The Philistines took their sword, and cut off Saul's head and hung it on the temple because they defeated him. You see, in one day, his self-interestedness came to a climax. His sons died because of him. His armor bearer dies because of him. The Amalekite who killed him is also killed later because he killed God's anointed. He loses his life. Israel, by almost all the soldiers that day, died. Why? Because the God gap got so wide, it started to pull in others into it. See, when you live a self-centered, not a God-centered life, it costs. It costs not just you, but people around you that are impacted by it. So let me say, how is your self-centered life beginning to impact others? Your spouse, your marriage, your kids, and how they're going to grow up, your family, your children, your friends. See, is your God gap showing in those relationships? Is it growing? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Pastor Walker I'm wasting my life. Is it too late for me? It's not too late for you because there's another king. Oh, there's another king other than Saul. And this is the king that gave his life for your wasted life. You know what? It took God's son to close your God gap. And that's what Jesus did. 
What would I have to do, Pastor Walker? Here's what you do. You put your trust in him because in him there is no breach of faith. There is no God gap in God himself. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He didn't, la- he, he didn't waste his life. Instead, you might say he wasted it on you when he died on the cross. See, that's the kind of king he is. And today he's asking you, put your trust in me. See, seek me. Seek my wisdom. Because Paul says to Timothy that the gospel can make you wise unto salvation. Oh, see, there's another wisdom that God offers you. The wisdom of eternal life. Seek him. And in doing so, renounce all other sources of wisdom. Turn your back on them. And give yourself to seek the Lord for the rest of your days, whether they be few or whether they be many. The choice is yours. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, may I kindly say, you're wasting your life. You're not the designer of your essence and purpose. He is. A self-centered life lived apart from him in the pursuit of his glory will end up being a wasted life. If you don't know him today, you can. He died on the cross and rose again for your wasted life and mine, our sinfulness. Come to him today. Seek him. Renounce the wisdom that has brought you thus far. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ and the wisdom of his death and resurrection and give your life to him and seek him. And you will find him. Perhaps you're a believer here this morning. You know, it's possible that you can be wasting your life. You could be younger. You could be older. Can I tell you this? The battle's never over. You have a 24-hour life every day as a believer to live. Who is it being lived for? You or God I know what you want to say, but what does your life indicate? What does it show? How does it demonstrate it? Whose wisdom makes the decisions in your life, the small ones, the big ones, and everything in between? See, 2024, you could begin by saying this as a believer. I am not wasting my life. I know what matters most, and I want to live for that because he died for me and rose again. Father, I pray that your word by your spirit has spoken to hearts today, perhaps those who have never found you. Father, if they seek you and you give them that ability, you might help them to repent of their own wisdom and their own idolatry and turn their lives over completely to you, that you could give them a purpose and a meaning and a joy that circumstances could never take away. Pray for believers here today. They know the commandments, and some know them and are disobeying them and wondering why things are going the way they are. Father, 
humble us. Tears, brokenness, repentance, a contrite heart, those sacrifices, O Lord, you will not despise. Father, help us not to pretend, but to desire the reality of a God-centered life. Move in our hearts to that end for your great name. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.